Hello and welcome to Cruise Club. We've got the Need the Need to Podcast. This is episode 36, Oblivion, from 2013. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And Mike, before we introduce our guest, I want to get a special scheduling announcement out of the way. Okay. Because we were recording this in the time of quarantine. Starting today, when this episode comes out on May 1st, both Cruise Club and Hanks of the Memories will both be weekly from here on out. Uh, so Cruise, we've got another like eight or so episodes, I think, including this. Like We're almost done. We're in the home stretch there. Mm-hmm. And we were going to go weekly for Hanks when that finished. But starting today, since we're like, backpiling, stockpiling episodes, we're going to uh, have a few more episodes coming at you a little bit more quickly. So if you're listening, hopefully that's good. Hopefully you're staying safe and in need of entertainment. But yeah, so every week from here on out for the rest of the next eight weeks or so. And then we're going to have you vote on the Cruise Club, whatever they're going to be called. I do, I do not know. Submit a name. We'll vote on the yeah, name. Run too. at cageclub.me. Please submit a name. I don't know. I do not know. But <laughs> the runnies. <laughs> with us tonight, we have someone making his Cruise Club debut, but not his TomTom debut. So before the recording, I looked up what he had been on. That's when I was like, that's weird. He was on one episode of Hanks for the Memories, not for a movie, for the three episodes that Hanks did on Family Ties. We have with us the host <laughs> of the Ginger Geek Podcast, Matt Delhauer. Hello, Matt. Hey, guys. How are you? Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Tom Tom Club. Happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that I get to hit the other Tom now. Yes, you are completing the sets, the one of each. It's wonderful. Yeah, and a movie, no less. You've done television and the silver screen. It's not too common that, you, that people can say that they've done that. Like, it's basically Brian and then maybe Iceland and mm-hmm. then you. Like, it's a very select company. Yes, I am up there with the greats now, and I appreciate Truly. it. <laughs> so now, before we get into the heart of the movie, before I talk about what Oblivion is about and we dive into our favorite and least favorite moments, could you please give our listeners, and us... A rundown of where you stand on Tom Cruise. Is he one of your favorite actors, or you just like some movies here and there? And why did you sign up for Oblivion? When was the first time you saw this? Is this a movie that you've been meaning to see? A movie you love? Just sort of give us all the greatest hits. You and Tom Cruise, go. Tom Cruise is like an anomaly to me. There are things he does that I think are brilliant, and then there are times where I just kind of shake my head and go, well, Tom needed a paycheck, I guess. I don't hate him as an actor. I just think that there are plenty of instances in his career where he has gotten lazy and fallen back on being Tom Cruise. Okay. This movie specifically for Oblivion was one that when it came out back in 2013, I was really interested because I had really liked Tron Legacy Uh and I wanted to see what this was going to offer because it seemed like it had this really kind of cool sci-fi element to it. Cruz was in that part of his career where he just did what he wanted. He didn't feel like he had a need to make movies, but he just did. I saw this movie for the first time two and a half hours ago. Oh, okay. okay. Before we get into this movie in particular, do you have a favorite Tom Cruise movie? I know you said you you love some, you don't like some, you don't understand some, some are just for a paycheck. Is there one or more that you love that you like you, that stand out from the rest? I would say top one for me would definitely be Interview with the Vampire. Yeah. Really? Yeah, wow, stat. okay. All right. Team Lestat. He is in his element in that. It is just early enough in his career that he is still putting in a great effort, but it's later on to a point where he's comfortable enough as an actor that he is confident in what he is doing. I kind of forgot about that role, Joey. You know, we talk about how he doesn't really get behind the makeup all that often. You know, it's kind of scarce, but there's an early sort of uh, version of it that worked for me. Man, I am. I was just not expecting that one at all. Like, I know that people love that movie. I was not... 
know, I like that I didn't love it, but I was, that's not the one that I expected. Like, just, you know, you expect to hear, like, a Top Gun or a Mission Impossible or mm-hmm. an Edge of Tomorrow or something, mm-hmm. and then to bust out Interview with the Vampire, it's like, oh, <laughs> all right, we're in, a, we're in a different dojo right now. Okay, I can get behind it. There you go. Here's what Oblivion is about. So we get a very heavy plot dump via the opening voiceover from Tom Cruise, who's playing Jack Harper. We're in the year, I think, 2077. Tom Cruise has had his memory wiped. He's on a station with Mandy from Mandy. Uh, 50 years ago, aliens called Scavengers destroyed our moon, which threw Earth into chaos. Uh, We won, humans won the war, but at the cost of destroying our planet because of nuclear weapons and such. So then humanity built what was called the Tet, which is the space station's tetrahedron in the sky, and moved humanity to Titan, Saturn's biggest moon. They're harvesting energy on Earth, I guess, ostensibly to bring to Titan. And Tom Cruise plays an engineer. He and Mandy play engineers. And they're basically just making sure that the machines stay functional while they're harvesting energy to bring to Titan. It's almost like WALL-E. They're like WALL-E is what it reminded me of. The last one's left. <laughs> this movie is kind of like WALL-E. It's kind of like Vanilla Sky in points. In points. It's kind of like Edge of Tomorrow in points. We'll get to all of that. Cruise still feels like a connection to Earth. He spends his days repairing drones and maintaining the status quo, finds a beacon repeating coordinates into this Zone 17, which on the maps they have is in the middle of nowhere. We see him, we find him secretly rebuilding this hidden life by this, like, luscious landscape by a lake. And while he's there, while he's off the grid, he sees this spaceship crash. He goes there and finds human survivors. Uh, One of them is this woman, Julia, who is or was his wife. She's played by Olga Kurilenko. He then gets captured by Morgan Freeman, playing basically Morpheus from The Matrix. And he learns of a war between man and machines, or man and AI. Jamie Lannister's there. Zoe Bell is there. Mandy feels betrayed that Tom Cruise has basically given up on her because they were like two weeks away from escape, even though kind of realize, I think, quickly early on. And uh, actually, I'll, 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 I'll pump the brakes there. There's this kind of a moon sort of element there, right? Yes. Where, you know, yeah, we'll, two we'll weeks get to that until in a second. vacation. <laughs> but Mandy feels betrayed that Tom Cruise is going elsewhere, and so she tells their commanding officer, who was played by Melissa Leo, that like Jack has become a, an unsustainable partner. Melissa Leo sends a drone to kill them. The drone kills Mandy, but. Julia saves him. They escape. Cruz battles a clone of himself, which is, I think, a Cruise Club first, which is very exciting. Uh, he helps lead the resistance against the aliens. In an ending that you almost need to read the Wikipedia to fully understand, uh, we learn that everything we basically have been told is the reverse, that the Tet is actually the AI, that humans are the humans, and they're not the aliens after all. Basically, Morgan Freeman and Tom Cruise head to the Tet to sacrifice themselves by nuking it and ending the war, just like Neo does at the end of Atrix Revolutions. On the way, Tom Cruise learns about the truth that Julia was, they were going to explore, or they're going to Titan, they saw this AI, he saved the rest of the crew, he and Mandy get captured, they get cloned like hundreds or thousands of times, these clones then destroy Earth, that's the battle, so there are at some point like thousands of Tom Cruises, Tom's crews running around Earth, and then in the very end, after the AI has been destroyed, Julia is living in Cruises Eden by the lake, uh, with their daughter, and they meet up with other survivors, including a Tom Cruise that he fought earlier in the movie. And they live happily ever afters. I guess, probably, right? <laughs> they go on to rebuild humanity. Cruise dies, ostensibly dies, because he mm-hmm. nukes himself, mm-hmm. and then he's still doing the closing voiceover, and you're like, yeah. what is happening here? Uh-huh. And then he shows up. If you've been listening along with uh, Cruise Club, you're you're savvy to this to this little trick of his. Cruise dies he, again, but does not actually dies die for like back. the sixth or seventh time. I will say the thing that caught me off guard is in the final uh, voiceover that he does, he's t- 
talking essentially about the wife, Julia, living in his, his cabin by the lake now, now that he has died and, and saved humanity. But the weird thing about it was, was if you think it's the cruise that we've been following the whole time, Tech 4-9, it becomes weird when he mentions the daughter, because you're like, oh, did he have the ability to know that she was pregnant in the 48 hours that they've seen each other again? So that is a question that I have that is basically approaching our Toy Story level of like, wait, <laughs> what is this movie actually positing? If you fall in love with a Tom Cruise and there's another clone, are you also in love with him? Because then when it turns out that the voiceover is actually Tech 5-2, also known as Tom Cruise the Second, essentially, he's the one mentioning seeing me in her as in the daughter. Yeah. So... How the hell does the clone know that well, the wife was pregnant? That's a great question. My more pressing question is, are there 50 other Tom Cruise clones still scattered about the United States also in love with this same woman looking for her? Like, there's... I think I'm having deeper problems with this movie on than just And it's that. even even beyond that is the fact that it seems like with the thousands and thousands of clones they had, that means they had Tom Cruise, Tom's Cruise, pardon me. Thank you. It's a true attorney's general situation. Mm. It's a code's red if there ever was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're across the globe doing this whole drone tech thing. So now that the tetrahedron or whatever it is, is destroyed in the sky, and I guess that means they're free of their programming, is she not going to then have thousands of them come <laughs> trying to find her at this lake? Well, they supposedly also have each their own partner with their Mandy up there, you know, the, that character is there as well. Yeah. So, And I also wonder, are they just, aren't they probably across the entire planet? So, I mean, it's wild. I think what the wiki suggests is that because they tussled, because they met each other through some osmosis oh. or something, they shared memories that way. But realistically, the other Tom's crews and the other Mandy's don't know that they're not alone. The truth that they've mm. been told, the truth that we're led to believe for the first 35 or 40 minutes of the movie, is that they're on this one outpost and the rest of the world is a barren wasteland. It's kind of like a reverse district 12 from the hunger games kind of right like it's just like or 13 or whatever the one is like we don't know that that's all wasteland but they're all told that so like you mike you're you and your yes. mandy are in new jersey but you're like the rest of the country is desolate and then matt's like you know you and your mandy are in ohio but the rest of the country is desolate and i'm in like virginia mm. and so like yeah you could probably explore but also at the same time i don't know what there actually is to explore because it seems like most of the land is desolate it's just there are these outposts that the cruises the tom's cruise and the mandy's have built and set up and whatever well the yeah. interesting thing that i want to posit with that though is so when he goes back to the second outpost to get medical supplies after uh, Julia gets hurt. This is after his Mandy has been killed by a drone because they realize that he's seen through the veil of everything. Yeah. He goes back, he's pretending to be this other Tom Cruise, and when he runs into her, he offers up to her, come with me down to the surface, you really need to see it. And this is a thing that he had done with his Mandy so many times, and that's how we're building him as a character who's a romantic that's got a connection to the planet, and this is why he's different and part of why he's breaking the programming. And she comments with, I told you I don't want to do that, it's protocol, we're not having this discussion again. So we get the idea that every clone that is a Tom Cruise, apparently, is just slightly too good to be fully brainwashed? I think the movie might be saying, or at least what I'm picking up, is that he's so in love, right, that love is 
the fifth element is going to conquer all like you can't you can't wipe that from his mind and that's why he's having like these ghost memories of a lady at the empire state building right and he keeps going there and i think maybe that's eventually why i realized they singled him out is because he's like the closest one to the beacon that could actually bring the ship down and there's something about that involved so here's here's the interesting thing so i i think that we're led to believe that this particular tom cruise is rebellious and okay maybe i misunderstood the movie maybe i misheard what you just said Matt, but i think that this tom cruise i think we're led to believe that this tom cruise is special i think it seems that way for most of the film until we meet the second tom cruise he also seems to have these flashes of memory of Mm -hmm. julia though granted that was only after he saw her so that could have been like, oh, seeing like a, her started messing with the programming or whatever. Like a trigger. But we're yeah. being led to believe that he has been trying to convince his version of the, of Mandy, we need to stay, This, you know, this is our home, this is our planet. And when he says in the final voiceover about, oh, well, I, I knew that I would find you at his home on the lake because it's a dream he had, and I, it means I know him and I know how he thinks. So it's the idea that every Tom Cruise clone has this dream of a house on the lake mm-hmm. with Julia and has these dreams every night of meeting her at, at the Empire State Building. I don't know that they have the lake house. I no, think they yeah. have the Empire. I think they have the Empire State Building because that's where he proposed. In the history of this movie, on Earth, there was like they were both astronauts, right? And so they had he proposed to her on top of the Empire State Building. They then go to space. They get separated. He and Mandy get captured and cloned, right? And Julia and everybody goes back to Earth or something, right? She stays in orbit for sixty years, and then yeah. he brings her down in the movie in stasis. Yeah, so she's sleeping like. Yeah, and so when she crashes, she crashes just coincidentally during the movie. Well, no, that's see the scavengers bring her down, and Morgan Freeman is like, that I s- found at the. Uh... Oh right, yes, yes, yeah, yes, and yes, he's yes. like, I, I could tell, like I saw you inside, just you didn't even, you know, I saw a glimmer of who you were and all this, and he's like, that's when I knew you would do what I wanted. Yeah. When we get the second major info dump from Morgan Freeman about midway through the movie is then when he's giving this whole line about like the moment I saw that you stood up to that drone to protect her thing, I knew you were the one we needed. Okay, but you apparently also know that there's thousands of these guys. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the other thing too is like there's hundreds of, th- but maybe it's the thing like I feel like the lake house might be the key. Like he's the only one that we know of anyway that has this little sanctuary lake house and he's collecting all of this like the books and the movies and you know he's soaking up like culture and everything like that and so maybe all these things are what makes him so different, right? than the other ones is that he has all this connection to the past and everything. I don't know how Morgan Freeman knows that and I don't know how uh, his clone learns it by like osmosis or whatever but like you know I'm just trying to realize why like he's the one instead of everyone else. I also think it has a lot to do with just location, location, location. Like, he was the closest one to the beacon. You know, he would be the first one they tried to use. So I have a question to posit to you guys, because this is another thing that feels possibly like a major plot hole. When they set Tom Cruise and uh, Julia free and tells him, like, oh, all the answers you, you're looking for are in the radiation zone. Jamie Lannister asks Morgan Freeman, why, why are we trusting him? Why, why are you putting your faith in him and he says well because she believes in him does he mean julia i who else so because yeah, who like, else would it be well how the fuck does he know when did he ever talk <laughs> to julia 
she's been frozen for 60 years. Yeah, I don't, and he seems extremely shocked when she says who she is. Like, you know, Morgan Freeman was like, what, a teenager when this all went down? And now it's like 50 years later. And so, like, how would he even, you know, it's not like he studied the history books or, you know, I'm not sure why he knows so much about any of this, really. They don't really go that deep into how they sort of, like, put their plan together. We survived, we came up with this plan, and now we're executing it. (laughs) So It took us 60 years to find the one clone of Jack Harper that likes books, and, and that's the one we need. Yeah, and so presumably, what, like, these clones seem to have some kind of lifespan because the Tet's been doing this for decades, but Tom Cruise either hasn't aged his clone doesn't age, or every couple of weeks, it's like a Sam Bell thing, right? Like, they just I'm... burn him up and re so, Okay, so hold on. So, let's establish the timeline really quickly. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like, the last Super Bowl that happened that we find out is 20... Like, this... Okay. <laughs> okay. The movie takes place in 2077. The last Super Bowl that we know takes place in 2017. So, in 2017 is, I guess, when they went to space, yes. right? At some point in those last 60 years... Like the entire okay, so in the last sixty years, the six people on the spaceship, five of whom die, plus Julia, are just orbiting Earth or are orbiting whatever, just like the yeah. solar system or whatever. Yeah, the Tet never thought to take out that ship in all sixty years. It's just like not a threat. So in those sixty years, they capture Cruz and Mandy. They then clone them a whole bunch of times. They then attack Earth, basically wipe out humanity except for the last say couple hundred people or whatever. They then have the cruises and Mandy's establish all those drones, like build all the drones, establish all the towers, mm-hmm. and then they're just utilizing, they're just continuing, like they're just surviving by using our natural resources. But we don't have like a concrete idea of when in those 60 years that happened. Like they might have just gotten set up like a year before, right? Oh, like, that's it true did. too, right. Well, and that was what I was thinking. I, I assumed that the, one of the big twists was going to be that it's not 2077 and that this only happened like five years previous and that was what the oh, whole memory wipe issue was. That would have been great. Of all the twists they didn't turn, like that could have been a cool Wait, one. Wait, say that again? They are establishing the idea that the the attack on Earth was in 2017, that this the movie is taking place in 2077, so there's, right. there's that 60-year gap of attack on Earth versus where we are now. In the beginning, he talks about how, oh, you know, the mandatory, like, five-year memory wipe, or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. uh, has occurred. I thought that this was going to essentially become that the five-year memory wipe is not a thing that they do, you know, for whatever reason they give. That instead it was, oh, this happened five years ago, we wiped your memory of it happening and convinced you that it was decades ago. Because then... You don't feel a need to fight back because you think you lost 70 years ago. And it would sort of justify the actions of the humans a little better, too, as to why they're not as or better mobilized or something. Like, if it had just sort of happened, like, this could be one of their last stands or something like that. Like, that would have been sort of more tense and things, you know? When he meets Morgan Freeman and Morgan Freeman's like, 60 years? What are you talking about? Like, this happened, you know, a decade ago or something. Like, that could have been, like, a really cool step, but... And, like, we can infer that every five years or whatever, there's, like, a five-year thing that they either, like, kill Cruz and Mandy and then just replace them with other clones, or they mm-hmm. just wipe the memories and put them back down there, right? Yeah. I'm thinking... If it's even happened. I'm wondering if maybe, like, the, the, the ability to control the clones only lasts for five years. You know, as we said, it seems like all of the Tom Cruise clones are kind of 
figuring out that they had a past yeah. and they're having dreams and it's not sticking and whatever else. They're breaking their loops. I'm wondering if the the memory wipe is just they birth the clone, put it on the planet, tell them we wiped your memory every five years, and then just have them work. So one of two things happens. Either like either it's that, like they're just kind of defective, or like I do think that there's a possibility just because of like the way that narratives are that this Tom Cruise is special. The other Tom Cruise at the end of the movie, like there's there's 49 who's were following for most of it, right? And there's 52 at the end. And I think that maybe this one was defective or something that he was, because he, maybe, maybe when he found the lake or something, but like, that's also weird. Like he would have probably had to have like, gone there on his like he would have had to have some kind of break to go there on his own yeah it's tough like i'm still sticking with the fact that he was too in love for the tet to fully wipe its mind like that i'm like i i think if you go much deeper like you're just gonna keep digging and digging and digging and it was just it was only in seeing julia that like he really woke up he truly right he became neo yeah i think part of the problem is this movie came out in a period of science fiction where every main character was some sort of a chosen one or special <laughs> one, that it just feels like that's what they built it to be. Like, oh, this was the clone who could have memories. But it's like, I don't know. What if it was just that the aliens were shitty at their job? Well, I also feel like this is around the time where not all of, but a lot of sort of big budget sci-fi stuff was sort of very like simplistic. Like this movie doesn't really want to try and conquer those issues. It's not really about all that. I wish it was, you know, about identity and things, but it's, I don't know. It's just like an environmental uh, kind of commercial for the most part. I think the funny thing is, is that this, this was uh, apparently a story that the director was originally planning to make into a graphic novel. Once they started doing art for it, they just said, screw it. We'll make it into a screenplay. We'll make it into a movie. I kind of wish it had instead been a graphic novel because they try and pack so much exposition into two hours. Yes. Yeah, which is weird, like, because of how beautiful this movie is. Like, it looks like a Ralph McQuarrie painting. Every shot looks gorgeous. One of the reviews that I read basically called it Concept Art the Movie. That's not a bad call. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's so strange that how, uh, like, how convoluted the exposition is because the rest of it is so understated. And I feel like that was a thing, too, was, like, playing at low key a lot. Like, a lot of sci-fi movies, like, didn't want to give answers and reveal too much. I think they shied away from that because The Matrix kind of confounded a lot of people by, like, talking too much maybe uh and so like maybe with this movie got a little lost where it's like we don't want to really explain everything away but they got caught like kind of with their pants down and like well we have to like do the double narrative thing where one's unreliable and the other one learns like they had to do the two truths anyway they may as well have just gone all the way i think the other issue is is that they were never happy with having just like a major twist it's not just oh who we think are the aliens are actually humans. It's, oh, who we think are the aliens are actually humans and who we think are the humans are the aliens. Also, he's a clone. Also, this is his wife. Also, they were <laughs> they were astronauts. It's like, shit, dude, just like give me maybe two at most. Also, Melissa Leo is not a person. She's actually AI. I always thought it was nuts that him and his wife are like a husband-wife astronaut team. Like how, how much more impact would it have been if like he she was one of the survivors on Earth and she had aged and Tom Cruise hadn't. And, you know, that's so much more like interesting and tragic. But like if she was the Morgan Freeman character, like, wow. Oh, that would have been fucking great. And like she doesn't want to tell him at first and he has to, he has to discover, he has to learn it from her or something yeah and like she's the john connor resistance leader but she's also got to like grip 
grip with all these emotions about like her husband being turned into like a world killer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the fact that the fact that Earth died with an army of her husband's killing everyone. Does she know that? Does she learn that from Morgan? Is she there when she hears that? Like as I, a woke I up think person? So, yeah. Oh my god! And she's still like. <laughs> That is terrifying. I mean, it's not like your it's not your husband that killed her. No, yeah, it's still, but I know. Being Julia to find out like, oh my god, it's my husband. No, it's a clone of your husband. Uh your husband was captured by aliens and cloned. Your actual husband has probably been dead for decades. She doesn't seem to care. No. No, they still smash. She also seems not to care at the end when like the other one shows up. I know, but honestly, would you like it's like, oh sweet, like he's you know She I just wants a Tom Cruise. Any Tom Cruise will do. <laughs> and if this one something happens to this one, there's there's another one out there somewhere probably. What's weird about this movie is that I saw this in theaters. Mike, did you see this in theaters? Had you seen this before? No, no. So I, I only seen this once all the way through. because uh, I kind of feel like I mean, even though I enjoyed this this screening of it, I feel like once is kind of enough. Like it, it just like it doesn't have great replay value. I feel, um, but the first time I was I was really into it. I saw it on HBO though when it premiered on HBO. That's what I was gonna. I'm glad you mentioned that it doesn't have great replay value because like what's weird about this movie is that like sometimes in a movie that has a twist or multiple twists, knowing them makes it better because you can see the pieces, you can like read ahead, you can be like, oh, I know what's coming, I see what they're doing here, this is very interesting. That is not the case here. Like, you, knowing that they're clones, knowing that like there's much more than you're being let on, it just almost feels like a waste of time in the beginning. But yet, somehow in the end, and I don't know why, and it, it might just be cheap manipulation, I feel like I was suckered in by the emotional ending of it all. I liked seeing for this particular viewing for what we're doing here, I like seeing Cruise battle Cruise, and I like some things and like, you know, some Cruise connections here and there, but like the ending, like the Cruise sacrificing himself and then the, you know, the Julia happy ending and like stuff like that, like I don't know why, but like up until that point I wasn't really on board and I was like yeah, like this is, like I, di I didn't feel I wasn't as down on it as a lot of critics seem to be. But I was not liking it as much as I had anticipated liking it. And then in the end I was just like Oh, that won me over. And I don't know why, because I don't know that the ending is good, and I think the ending is confusing, but there's something about it that just did it for me, and I don't know what that is. It's interesting that you say that, Joey, because as I was watching it for the first time, I'm writing down my notes, and one of the first things I wrote down was within the first 15 to 20 minutes, I said, this feels like a 15-year-old got handed a writing prompt about life after an alien attack, and everything he wrote was just... They've got these cool ships they fly, and they take care of drones, and he rides a dirt bike every so often, and he's yep. got this crazy gun with this cool white leather outfit. And, and he's like, got a really hot right, girlfriend. Great. So everything's visually cool, okay, but what do, why am I here? What do I right. care? It's not until like an hour in when we actually start getting plot that you go, okay, these are some interesting ideas and some interesting twists, but we've spent so much time establishing how cool everything looks that I am not getting a lot out of that until you finally get to the end and you kind of get suckered in by, like, the standing up against the system that tricked you and, you know, savior of humanity kind of storyline. The first screening, I didn't notice any of the plot holes, you know, because, like, all of the reveals came sort of on time at the right moment and worked when they needed to. And then rewatching it, knowing I'm like, well, I see the holes, I feel like this time, like, I feel I feel that they, sh they should have done more in other places with what I know is coming and and things didn't exactly line up. However, I will agree that like the emotion still comes through. Like I feel like this is an extremely well-directed movie with a very troubled script. Like the screenplay is all over the place. Like it's two or three different movies smashed together. Like they could have done a lot 
more with a lot less even you know uh, if there were no humans or whatever like tom cruise i feel like his character after the first hour i was like maybe he's gonna like there's a way he could have figured all this out on his own and taken care of it by himself uh and then when you know his wife does show up it does a good job of driving the rest of the film emotionally uh story-wise as opposed to like making any other kind of sense you know at least i feel they're sort of like drive emotionally as opposed to like the plan or the plot or any of that kind of stuff i think one of the the major issues that they dealt with as writers and with this story is they got very much caught up in like the jj abrams mystery box storytelling he's going to tell us what's going on with the world that's great we're establishing what the world is now we don't need to do that for 45 minutes but they decided to do so anyway then suddenly it's oh but now we've also got this mystery of what's up with his dreams of this woman he can't really uh, find. And then he finds her out in the wild after her ship crashes to Earth. What's going to happen now? Well, it's going to turn out that, oh, the aliens aren't aliens, they're humans. So then who are the aliens? But we also find out there's more Tom Cruises. What's happening with that? Tom Cruise, like, please. Yeah, sorry, I apologize. I, I'm, I'm, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but it just it gets to a point where it's just like question question yeah. question and then at an hour and a half answers and now let's get to the finale answers galore yeah <laughs> you know mike you say this a lot i'm surprised that you know we're like half an hour or whatever into this podcast you have not said this yet but like more so than anything else we've covered i feel like this could benefit tremendously from like the eight hour netflix miniseries <laughs> like yeah. well another thing i used to say a lot is things needed to happen so much earlier like if if, yeah. if imagine like the opening act he's sitting there pontificating about the world and life and suddenly his wife falls out of the sky and it happens like right then kick it off much sooner the inciting incident happens almost an hour into the movie that is terrible writing the problem is that there's too much going on like the fact that there's like a huge plot dump to open and close the movie it's like what what why <laughs> like i don't think this is bad i don't think it's good i enjoyed most of it I'm just frustrated a little bit because I think that there's something interesting here. The movie looks gorgeous. You know, obviously we love Tom Cruise. Mandy is great. There's so many good actors in here. I just feel like if they need to, like, to your point that you've made a couple times, Matt, like, cut out half the ideas. Get rid of all the plot dump and dump different plot that we see and then just, like, two of these things or three of these things or whatever instead of, like, six or seven. There's too much here, especially considering that 45 minutes is just him fixing robots ultimately my my two biggest things that i think they could have cut out cut the beginning down a lot more have her ship crash within the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie great we're in it and we're interested in the end when he is flying up to the alien spaceship to try and bomb it i don't need the flashback of what happened on the the shuttle i don't care anymore <laughs> we've already established he got captured the mm -hmm. two of them got cloned everybody else got you know fucked off in some fashion now we're here i gain nothing from sitting here for the f next 15 to 20 minutes watching a story that happened before the story that's happening now in the finale of the story i'm in in the middle of <laughs> like that's done almost exclusively so that you feel the emotional resonance right like it's not like plot based like it's emotion based i think it would right? have been so much stronger if you just heard the the audio too and saw the expressions on his face and saw the trip up you didn't need though like you said like flipping all the way back and seeing it like just hearing it would have would have been enough but yeah even just give me little like flashes here and there of like things that might have happened fine because i get it we're supposed to get the idea that oh when this happened 70 years ago 
he made sure that he jettisoned the rest of the crew to save them, and this kind of plays into the fact that he didn't bring his wife to die with him to go blow up this thing. Like, this is a character part of him. Great. But also... Yeah. We're going to see some of it anyway when he gets inside, all the, the clones and stuff. And it's amazing to me, for as much as this movie likes to show and not tell, it tells way too much. Uh, I would love for it to show some of the things it's talking about more. Because like, I think it does a good job of being like, this is Earth now. And it, does, yeah. it doesn't have to say a word really about that. It's all That's there the trouble the with, with it, that the voiceover uh, exposition dump in the beginning is it's five minutes of telling me the entire setup of the story that's about to happen. So I can then spend the next 40 learning nothing. Yeah. It's it's almost like it's fast forwarding when it shouldn't be fast. It should be playing and it's playing when it should be fast forwarding. Like it just like feels like the mm-hmm. the ratios or just the speeds of everything are screwed up. And I like like I almost wouldn't mind luxuriating in a world like a two hour movie. Like if it's all the pace of the first 40 minutes, like that's fine. But the story has to be a lot smaller. Like I don't mind a small kind of weird story I, I guess you're i guess in that sense it's kind of be like building a franchise i don't know like at the end of the first i guess then it becomes the the, the, H, the netflix or the hbo miniseries it just feels like it wants to tell so much more story that why is it choosing to go that speed the idea of, of if it's you're going to maintain this slow speed but tell a smaller story that's blade runner 2049 like which it's is, got that slow pace, yeah. yeah, very, very, you know, Artur sci-fi that tells a very personal story, mm-hmm. and we're there. That's it. Yeah, I think this movie introduces ideas that it gives up on or doesn't have time to explore that I'd rather see a movie about, which is unfortunate. Like, if let's just say, you know, if his wife's ship crashes in another zone and he bumps into his other self earlier, then that's even better, right? And there's that, you get to all that and explore all that instead would have been so much more interesting. So I'm almost like bummed that we find out that, uh, or he even meets up with another version of himself in this movie because they really don't do anything like significant with it, right? And what they try to do doesn't necessarily pay off the way they want for me in the end. So it's just like all these sort of like threads they should have sewn together that they just decided not to. The sad part is a lot of the the things that come up and especially a lot of the things that are heavy sci-fi feel like they only exist in this movie because someone said, oh, that would be awesome. But the scavenger design, even in stuff, they have all wearing like predator masks. I'm like, if you're not throwing me off any kind of trail, like, you know, I'm not sure if that was supposed to be some kind of red herring where it's like, well, let's design them off of a well-known alien creature or something like that. But they should be like, no, 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 we're human. Yeah, I can only assume. And this is just me writing explanation into the story they believe that because these massive clone armies of tom cruise showed up murdering humans that it's either outside of the realm of reasoning with them or they know that it's not actually him something of that nature i don't know i don't know (laughs) I, i just don't know are there moments of this movie that we've not talked about yet that either of you loved? Like, there's favorite moments? Because it feels like we're all around the same place. I think Matt probably liked it, sounds like the least of us, but, like, are there things in here that you love that we have not discussed yet? And the funny thing is, is I'm just really good at picking things apart. Uh, right. I actually did enjoy it. I had a fun time with it. Uh, my feeling was it tries to feel a little more lofty than it is, but it is still a, a, a good two hours to spend on 
a hard sci-fi that looks pretty cool and has some fun things that happen in it. This movie has not done any benefit by knowing in a couple movies we're going to have Edge of Tomorrow. That is exactly what I was just going to say, Joey. I, like... I feel like the seven <laughs> years since hint, since this movie has come out is not... It, it's a lot of time. I don't think this movie is, like, it, it hasn't, like, aged poorly, I don't think, but, like, knowing what's coming and knowing some other sci-fi stuff that we've seen since then, especially since I feel like this has been, like, the last decade was, like, a really good decade, I have loved so many different, like, really, like, lofty intellectual or pseudo-intellectual or whatever, like, Interstellar and Arrival and Edge of like, all these movies, like, we've had a great decade, I think, for sci-fi, and mm-hmm. I don't think that this movie ages poorly the fact that it's like seven years old, but I think just there's so much better that's come since then that it's like, oh, this was good or this was like even better than it is now. Like maybe not great, but like really good. And it's like, oh, it's still good, but it's like, it's not as good as what's about to come. We've seen people take this and do it better. And even before, like I mentioned Moon, you know, one of Mm -hmm. like my favorite movies ever does this exact sort of same thing, like on a micro, micro scale. And it comes out like to be, for my taste, like so much better. Like, but I would still rather have this than not because like I come to thinking like, this reached like such a mainstream audience, you know, and, and people probably saw this that weren't into sci-fi and got like sort of, you know, sort of like an entry level into it. And it's a great sort of visual feast. And then you probably had like sci-fi fans who appreciated it because it showed that mainstream Hollywood is at least still trying. It might look like 2001 at times, but it doesn't, it's, it's more like Star Wars at other times, right? It's sort of unbalanced and mixing these two genres of sci-fi, but I still think it's ultimately pretty successful for what it's doing. And Metacritic, I think it's got like in the mid 50s, so it's not great. I mean, it's not bad, but it's not great. Financially, it wasn't a huge hit, but budget of 120 million, what made worldwide 286, made 89 domestic, 197 international, because this is the kind of movie that like you don't need to understand what's going on just to look and admire the beautiful people and the beautiful settings and everything like that. So if you figure they doubled the budget for marketing, they didn't make a ton of money, but they probably made $40, $50 million. Like, that's just the Tom Cruise effect, right? Like, that's just, you cast him in the movie because he's a global movie star. For it to reach such a mainstream audience, you're right, Mike. Like, it's, if everyone saw Primer, like, maybe they would hold things to a higher standard. But, like, no, like, <laughs> people aren't going to see Primer. Like, there, there's a reason that, like, Primer is, like, as dense as it is because, like, Shane Carruth was basically making it for an audience of one, and that's himself, right? So, yeah, no, people have to go see, you know, Endgame is their time travel movie right now, right? Yes. Like, that's the level mm-hmm. they needed on. <laughs> But so, Matt, are there any moments in here that you love that we have not talked about? Any other, you know, characters or moments or scenes or lines or anything? Or hated, either way, because we this is sort of a different format that we've been doing. This is kind of like our old school discussion, mm-hmm. but I think it kind of works better for this movie. But things mm-hmm. you love, things you hated, any other big kind of notes about Oblivion before we play a couple games? Honestly, the, the moment when the section of the spaceship crashes down and he's checking on it and he finds his wife in it. It's, it is a moment that feels pitch perfect for being in this kind of a movie that mm-hmm. we've at least established the idea of this is somebody he somehow knows she's now in his life. And this is going to turn the entire world upside down. And I feel like his acting in the moment when he comes across her comes across the survivors and then the drones start killing them is some of the best he does in this movie. You feel the panic, you feel the emotion, and you feel the intensity of the the moment happening because everything is chaos. And that, to me, is the WTF moment. Even still, when I watch it, I think it's pulled off really well where it's like, how 
in the world could sh- how could it be that person that he you know how could it be her like i still love that reveal i feel like that's the one that works in this movie like i don't it's like it's i i know those are humans i know the tet's like some kind of alien ai <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's not getting over on me other ways but when she shows up even this time i was like this is so like this is such a how did this happen moment and it and works. i think it's also it's very much cemented in or or, or supported by the fact that once it happens, we have to sit with it for a little while without anything getting explained to us. Unlike the moment we find out, oh, the, the scavs are actually humans, we are instantly there with Morgan Freeman explaining the plot to us. I don't know if I love Morgan Freeman in this movie. I think it's not, it's not the performance. It's just that like he's there to serve a function, right? Like He's not there. He's just there to progress the plot. His character has very little connection to anything. Like He's not part of Jack's former life. Right. This is not anybody that we are going to understand or recognize. It's just we needed a leader of the resistance. Yeah. And so we said, all right, well, who's a cool old guy? Uh, get You know, get Morgan Freeman. And he was the voiceover, Mike, if you'll remember, in War of the Worlds. So he has a That's sci-fi right. connection. Like, honestly, it just should have all been Jamie Lannister. Like, it, you know, he should have had all the lines. Like, Or it could have been, to Matt's point from earlier, it could have just been Julia. Like, it just, you simplify, yeah. you take out the entire spaceship crashing thing. He finds them some other way, like he's just patrolling. Like, removing things, combining things, and giving more emotional resonance to characters. Like, so yeah, maybe you don't dupe at the end, but like, instead of at the end, you know, you bring Morgan Freeman up there, then you bring Jamie Lannister. Like, it doesn't, like, it's just, you need somebody else with him. It doesn't need to be Julia. Like, it, yeah. it's, it's intentionally not Julia, but like, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and especially the only reason Morgan Freeman is up there is because we had a throwaway line of, man, I'd really like to see the look on their face when we blow it up. <laughs> it's a real, like, end of Independence Day situation. Exactly, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, anything else that you pointed out or that you noticed that you loved or hated or want to talk about? Two things. So the first thing is, even though, Matt, I, I agree with that flashback at the end, not necessary. However, it was necessary because Tom Cruise wanted to probably film in zero G and needed that on film. And so I think that's mm. what's going on there. And I think that's why that sequence is made the final cut is because he went on a vomit comet and he's like, I got to get this footage into the movie somehow. Uh, And, you know, he does that again in The Mummy. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's why that's there. When they enter the Tet, I could not be more underwhelmed by what we find inside. Like, I was kind of, like, the first time even I watched this, I was, like, laughing at how empty it was and how dumb there was just another smaller tet inside of the bigger one. I needed some kind of weird... Cronenbergian version of like Tom Cruise and Mandy co-pilot like fused together as some kind of weird ass brain that knows you know what's going on you know what I'm saying like I needed some kind of like alien horror going on inside of that ship they really dropped the ball uh, once we get inside like I'm so anxious to get in there the whole movie something cool has got to be in there why is it so big it like orders drones to attack him he's got like an army of Tom Cruise's in the Tet itself. Why aren't any of them awake? Like, that bummed me out. I even drew a little picture on my notes of, like, a Tom Cruise head with, like, wires and gears, almost Borg-like, coming out of his head and stuff, and just how horrific and awesome that would have been. He's got an Elvis bobblehead that he calls Bob because his head bobbles? Yeah, I guess he doesn't know Elvis anymore, right? Part of the mind wipe? <laughs> it's, it's the most I could probably assume is it's a bobblehead. So it's Bob. And he probably doesn't know it's a bobblehead. He just sees it bobbing. And so he knows so what you a head know, bob is. But like, that's what I don't understand. Like, you know English lexicon. You know <laughs> how, what, a, what a, bob, a bobble means. Like, what it means to bobble. 
But you don't know Elvis? Yeah, maybe of all the records he found, he didn't find any that uh, had the king. No, you see him go, it's mostly 70s classic rock that he's into. I mean, there's Elvis 73 comeback special, baby. I know that. You know that. I mean, I'm sure Matt even knows that, but, you know, Tom 49 or whatever (laughs) didn't find it in the rubble. I guess Hell, not. He, either, he even could have done Elvis in Hawaii if he wanted yeah. to. Yeah. I was all, I mentioned at the very top, I think, in the plot dump very quickly, but this is very Vanilla Sky. Like, that ends maybe on the Empire State Building or maybe just atop some other New York very tall building oh, yeah. where he jumps off. So there's that there. He's also early in this movie talking about, like, being in a dream, which is, like, open your eyes, Aubrey Los Ojos. Like, like, if Vanilla Sky is, like, a frustrating, unfulfilled potential of a movie, this is, like, the same thing but, like, on a different different level or different track or something like it feels like they're both like so close to being great and they just don't execute in a way that is like oh it's all there you know what i mean with vanilla sky it it always felt like a movie that was just a few tweaks away from being very cerebral but also like satisfying in the way that it does that yeah it almost needed like a michelle gondry 10 years ago to direct that 10 years you know prior to that or something the issue that oblivion falls into is it is a movie that wants to be both deep and philosophical but also shallow and action filled and it doesn't know which one it wants to be so it tries to be both yeah i feel that i totally feel that very well said even if i had loved this movie in like to the nth degree it never would have made up for the fact of like everything that happened before the movie because not only is the Universal logo, like, super cool in this. Like, we see the ravaged landscape. We see the tet in the sky. Mm-hmm. Like, the Universal word, I think, is even, like, ravaged. Like, it's just very... Like, I always think it's very cool. Especially, I think Universal does it a lot. Like, didn't they do Happy Death Day where, like, it keeps, yep. like, recycling? Yeah. Like, it's so cool when they, they do something. They mess with the opening credits in a way. And I'm like, that's just, like, a cool touch, like, that you don't have to do. But, like, why wouldn't you do that? And I think that's really cool. But nothing could beat when I put this Blu-ray in my Xbox... And I started up, and the first thing I see is a trailer for Fast and Furious 6. And I was like, oh, oh boy, no matter what this movie is, I'm not going to like it as much as this trailer for Fast and Furious 6. So it's all downhill from here. But yeah, between that and the opening, <laughs> I was just like, oh, this is getting off on such a good foot. And I was like, all right. So some trivia about this. Matt, you mentioned earlier that the directors who made this movie also made, or the people who made this movie also made Tron Legacy. Oh, and apparently Tron they Legacy. had such a miserable time on that movie with all the, the the blue screen that they wanted to do like as little of that as possible here. So apparently they had like that sky footage, like they actually built like some kind of tower or something for them to act in. Yes. And they had around the building a 500 by 45 foot screen of 21 monitors that they projected like the landscape onto so it felt like they went from a world where like nothing was real to not everything is real but like as much as we can conceivably imagine is real and i think that's a really interesting fascinating kind of 180 there have you seen the footage of the making of it's incredible the set that they designed for this led technology that they use and and it's like you could project anything in the world onto it and this is the stuff they're using now to film the mandalorian where it's like they're off of blue and green screen for the most part too and the behind the scene footage of that is even more amazing because like they've fused this system with the unreal engine and they could change it in real time any way they want this is a cornerstone and like an advance in special effects that like I never knew about you know that like I didn't realize that until like rewatching it recently but like this that's really awesome and I feel like it, you feel it you feel like you're up in the clouds it's gorgeous I love that about this movie well and one of the things that I think is interesting is the cinematographer and the 
production designer on this were the ones who then went on to both work on Star Wars Episode Seven, I believe. Okay. They took the technology they built with this, and I guess they kind of, well, no, they built with Universal, and they brought it to Disney. That's awesome. And I, I mean, I got to say again, like, I loved Tron. I didn't know that the same creative force was behind it, but I could totally see it now. They've, it's such like a great streamlined sort of visual uh, style to all of all of this and that movie. There was a bit of trivia that I deleted that I think that Disney bought the rights to the script and they wanted to make like a PG version of this and they like realized that they couldn't do it without completely reworking it. So I think they either sold it or just got optioned or something to oh. Universal. But this was almost for a second a Disney movie. Did you ever see After Earth, was it? The Shyamalan movie with Will Smith and his son? That's kind of... I'm not saying it's this, but that kind of feels like what they would have done with this. Is like recast it as like a kid or like, you know... Mm, they, mm-hmm. they did come out the same year. Oh, okay. The title of this movie and also some of the lines in here reference the... Uh, from Eloisa to Abelard, which is the poem that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind got its title from. So it's like this oh. epic poem that I remember reading, knowing about. I don't know if I read the whole thing, but I read in high school how happy is the blameless vestal's lot the world forgetting by the world forgot eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and then basically oblivion is just you know the idea of being so forgetful to the point of where there's nothingness and so the memory wipe the the drifting off into oblivion that kind of thing there's a couple things in here that are like very similar to things and scenes and sequences in mission impossible 3 also in mission impossible 3 ethan hunt his wife is named julia so there's a connection there hmm. as well which is interesting. This is the third time that Tom Cruise has played a character named Jack, including the second movie in a row. He played Jack Reacher. He played Oblivion. And, Mike, do you remember the third Jack that he played? Oh, it's on the tip of my brain. It's a movie that I do not like that Montez loves. Legend! Legend! There we go. Third Jack. And then the final thing that I want to say here, I guess it was prob- it seems, because there's no other trivia about this, that this was always a Tom Cruise movie. But in the role of uh, Julia, so his wife... They auditioned or they considered Olivia Wilde, Numi Rapace, Kate Mara, Olga Kurilenko, who obviously got the part, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and then, for the second movie in a row, Mike, Britt Marling auditioned for the role. Jessica Chastain was cast, but dropped out due to scheduling, so it went to Olga Kurilenko. And then for the role of Vika, which went to Mandy, Diane Kruger, Haley Atwell, and Kate Beckinsale all considered for that role. So I guess they wanted a a Euro-British-German something i don't know <laughs> i do not know i didn't check the credits quick question is that his real daughter at the end of the movie tom cruise's daughter is that siri cruise by any chance like i've only seen like on tabloids or whatever but like i, I was just like did cruise. he put his daughter at the end of this movie and it sounds like she's adr'd and stuff like that too so she could have been like too young no to i mean suri cruise has an imdb but uh, she's only herself in five different things like and she's okay. she would have been just... seven she would have been seven at this point so i think she would have been a little uh, bit i couldn't old. have played a three-year-old because right. yeah. I know that happened once or twice in something we watched, where they played, they used like their real kid. I think or Katie something. Holmes had kind of taken Surrey and and run okay. off at this point. All right. So now a very important question, and I literally do not even know where to begin thinking about this. Matt, we <laughs> played this on the Hanks episode you were on. If Tom Hanks were cast in the role of Jack Harper, would this work? Could this work? Or is there another character in this movie that he could play? I think. The obvious one would probably be the Morgan Freeman role. I don't know if he's old enough, but I think he could definitely pull that sage. If they wound up actually getting uh, Tom Hanks to play the lead, that would have been what then set them down the path of doing a fully cerebral film. It would have been a slower-paced, more narrative-driven thing. Yeah, I can we see that. Ditched the, we would have ditched the motorbike. We would have ditched the 
you know, uh, X-Wing in the canyon fight he had with the drones halfway through. And it would have been a lot more of just, okay, he goes out, he fixes these things, he found a woman. Oh my god, I know this woman. What's going on? And it would have, it would have been a lot of just Tom Hanks looking confused for two hours. It almost would have been like the far future in Cloud Atlas, right? Yes. Yes. Very good, very yeah. good pull. Mm-hmm. That like he can still kind of get around. He can still. I think that's also this year. Twenty. It's 20, maybe twenty twelve. Like it's around this time. It's like within a year of this movie coming out. But it's him in a sci fi sort of dystopic. What we see kind of as idyllic, but also as dystopic or whatever future. And he's able to kind of hold his own, but also not quite. But yeah, I think like he could repair drones, but he wouldn't have the action. I think that's a good point. But yeah. I can sort. I mean, have, you would have to you have to remake the movie around him, but I could I right. could see him in that role. Yeah. What do you think, Mike? I would see them building an ending where he would use his ability as an engineer to turn the drones against the aliens. Hmm. Yeah, I also got. Uh, I would get like a big kind of castaway vibe from his performance. I feel too, as sort of one of those last man on earth kind of performances where, you know, he might even, you know, I think what Matt said about being more cerebral, like I could see his character sort of where all those action beats are for Cruz, like his would be way more introspective and like going insane or something like that, or, you know what I mean? And like trying to figure it out, but yeah, I would or like even that. like the scene where he's in the library and the, the scavengers try to catch him. It would have been built more on the idea of like, this man could die at any minute rather than like, He's going to jump across a chasm and then, you know, uh, fight them off with his gun. It'll be more like, no, he's fairly certain he's going to die. And then he gets saved by the drone. And I think it would have been cool, too, when you find out, like, just picture an army of Tom Hanks's as opposed or Tom's Hanks as opposed <laughs> to an army of Tom's crews. Like, it's just that is just twice as frightening to me because <laughs> it's a hey, it comes America's dad. Oh, no. <laughs> He's got waves a gun. And waves. So now, Matt, two very important questions that we ask on every Cruise Club episode, which I know that you just listened to our Rock of Ages episode before this, so you heard them on there. Does Tom Cruise run in this movie? I think like it's not a very heavy run movie, but they're in the action scenes. I think he does run. Like there's not any, from mm-hmm. what I remember, memorable running sequences, but he does he, run in this movie, right? He does. He does a few sprints, but there's no running from the destruction of the Kremlin in this, right? We also found on Twitter, Har Perfect said you can replace Tom Cruise's character with the name Lightning McQueen in any movie and not a thing would change. Oh, I have a really good idea here, Mike. So instead of having flashbacks to him proposing to his wife, he's just having flashbacks to the Lightning McQueen car and he's just like remembering society be through the eyes of Pixar. Like if this is the <laughs> Disney movie, that's what it is. And he's just like, oh, there's something there's something lodged in my brain and it's just like he's seeing the eyes. It's like a, a monochrome, the car's eyes. It's a really dumb idea. Matt, do you think that he could be Lightning McQueen in this movie? The funny thing is, is I think they could make him McQueen. I don't know if they could pull off Lightning. So here's something that I was thinking the whole movie, because I was like, could they call him that? So his name in, in this is Jack Harper, right? Yeah. Jack Harperfect. Ooh. That's where my mind went this whole time, because I knew this question was coming. <laughs> Interesting. So I'm going to say yes and then maybe. Or yes and then sort of. I think we took out the sunglass question thing, but did you notice that like when he goes to his log cabin, he puts sunglasses like, down, yeah. He takes them out and puts them right into the frame and kind of like stares at him like, yeah. <laughs> I think that's also like a relic or a bygone era, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's because in his flashback, he remembers where them when he meets her at the uh, the tower. Ah. All right, the final thing we have to do here is the Tom Cruise Awards best film or best of the worst, most fun bad film. I don't think this is either. I think this is, again, just sort of right down the middle. 
What say mm-hmm. you? Yeah, this is not his best film, but he also has done worse. Best cruise role, best cruise supporting role, most badass role, most daring role to take. Again, I don't think any of these qualify. I think it's, again, kind of down the middle, kind of written for him, kind of in that wheelhouse. Not necessarily super exciting here. Like He's not doing anything here I don't think that we've seen him do better in a handful of other movies. I'm going to throw into the ring Tom Cruise clone beating up Tom Cruise for best Tom Cruise supporting role. Oh, <laughs> interesting. I like that. Has he ever been his own supporting role? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But we're going to get for sure when we get to best fight, which is... Oh, yeah. uh, next, yes, Cruise on Cruise. There we go. That's, that's a real yes, Superman that's a contender. 3 moment. Yeah. Best theme song soundtrack score? I feel like it's in the vein of just like nice sci-fi scores, but I don't know that it's necessarily memorable. I think what distracted me from it was knowing that these were the guys who did Tron Legacy, it felt like they were trying to capture that done by Daft Punk sound. Right. Mm. Daft Punk tis not. Um, I was more down with all the bleeps and bloop bloops and blops and stuff that like all the machines were making like I thought there's some great sirens and horns and honking and stuff like that so like I didn't even really you know impacted by the score at all I was more into like the drone noises and stuff it had an interesting collection of really cool sound design but also very questionable sound design because there are points where the drones start making animal noises (laughs) I don't think I got that (laughs) they growl like tigers when they die yeah when he blows one up it honestly makes like this terrible wailing sound before it (laughs) It explodes. It's a remnant of what once was, right? Like just recapturing the humanity that they have destroyed, I guess. Mm. Best vehicle chase race. I'm going to put the X, the quote unquote X-wing chase in Oblivion. It's uh, definitely enjoyable, but it is a thing that even on my first viewing, I went, oh, someone likes Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that's going to necessarily make the final cut because this is probably going to get cut down to five, but for now we can put it on there and, you know, Mike and I can call the list in a couple of weeks. Best dance scene? Don't think he dances in this, does he? No, not to my knowledge. Best cruise outfit wardrobe? Like, he looks mm. cool, but, like, it's not It's, it's not so an all-time plain. great... It's not a, yeah, it's not an all-time great astronaut suit. Again, this feeling of just, like, someone being like, what's a really cool thing? Motorcycle leather uh, outfits. Great. How do we make it sci-fi? Make it white. Yeah. He's no uh, Oscar Isaac in Dune. Oh, boy. Best sunglasses? No, there are sunglasses, no. Best death? Yes. Absolutely. Nuked? Self-nuked. In space, like, blowing up an alien AI? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sacrificial space nuke is definitely a good one. Best line or best freakout? There's the line that I want to, the the, the pull quote that I'm going to have for this episode is dream of us, but I don't think that's an all-time great. What's he say at the end, his final words are like, fuck you, Sally. Fuck you, Sally. (laughs) Yeah, but again, like, that's just like a, all right, okay. And it's, I was waiting for it because as they were building up to that moment, I was like, all right, they're going to give him his, his final his final line, his, one, his one-liner to end this. And it, it was like watching um, iRobot again with, oh, you gotta die. Yeah, that's when you know for sure what, what movie you just watched. <laughs> Most athletic feat, is there anything, Mike, that the Tom Cruise, the actor, not the character, well... the actor does in this movie uh, that is truly breathtaking and remarkable? I think... Zero G is cool, but is I that don't know. real? Was the zero G actual? Did I you didn't, find anything about it? I didn't that, see or? anything about it. No, I don't know. I mean, that's not okay. to say that it's not, but there was nothing on the IMDb mm-hmm. trivia about it. The only thing I can imagine, and I also don't know if this was a full thing that he did or not, but he also has that chasm leap in the library, and you know, Tom Cruise can't help but just jump off stuff. Oh, that was actually that was one of the things that I think was very similar to Mission Impossible Three, where he like throws the rifle and then makes the jump and barely makes it. It's kind of like yep. an almost Indiana Jones moment, right? Where he's just like he's about to get 
He's about to die, but he doesn't get killed or whatever. Best running scene. Like you said, there are sprints, but there are no actual running scenes of any note. Best or worst love story. Hmm. I think the best way that you can you can vote in either way of this is if you go with Mike's theory that his love for his wife was the only thing to keep him from being brainwashed by aliens. It's the fifth element. Love. All right. I will say Jack and Julia. That's fine for best love story. I mean, it spans over 60 years. <laughs> and saves humanity. Yeah. Best ensemble cast, no. I think that's kind of our point that we've been making. Like, we, there's too many people, and none of them get enough screen time, I don't think. Like, why is Jamie mm-hmm. Lannister not, like, the third lead? You know what I mean? No one who isn't Tom Cruise has enough of a role here to really warrant them being there. Also, what's really weird, at least now, I don't remember how it was billed then, but, like, on IMDb, on Letterboxd right now, Julia, like, Olga Kurilenko gets second billing, and Andrea Riseborough gets, like, fourth billing, which makes sense because she dies, like, an hour into the movie. If you're thinking the first 50 minutes, or basically, or 40 minutes, or whatever, are just the two of them, it's like, why is she not second billing? It's just, like, a weird yeah. kind of, like... Oh, it's like, oh, like, I, it's almost like a spoiler in the casting, right? Like, it's just like, oh, oh, okay. Well, and especially for the fact that second build is Morgan Freeman. We are giving away a twist in this movie by telling you who is in this movie. I think I remember that in the trailer, too. I think there was something like that happened. Uh, it was around that time where they really started just, like, showing everything. And then best non-cruise actor, male or female. I think people are good here, but I don't know, like... Is Olga Kurilenko, I think she's good. Is she on par with, like, Nicole Kidman or with Penelope Cruz or with Elizabeth Shue or, right. like, any of these people that we've nominated? Yes or no? I'm not, I don't know. Mm, I would say no. This is the folly of bringing someone who started a career as a model into then becoming an actress. Yeah, it's tough. Like, I would say yes if I could remember or care why she liked that certain painting so much you know like that just it's like what why are we even going here at this point you know like it just feels like they knew and tried to fix her character somehow towards the end and stuff but i don't know i don't i just i don't feel it yeah the most that she got was she got the one moment where she stood down against the uh uh drone by firing a gun at it when it was attacking all the other people and then Jamie Lannister saved her. So we nominated this. We wound up nominating this for four awards. Best fight, best vehicle chase race, best death, and best love story. Which, again, who knows if, that'll make, if any of those will make the cuts. But, yeah, for now, four nominees. Not bad. A lot of weird nominees. You yeah. Know? Dies yeah. and comes back. Fights himself. Weird love story. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. You've been on a couple of, or at least one, High School Summer Party episode recently. So if people want to hear more of your voice, they can hear more about uh, you over there on the Dazed and Confused episode. But is there anything else anywhere else on the internet that you would like people to find you if they want to get more Matt Delhauer? They can find me on the Dazed and Confused episode of uh, Slumber Party, as well as Brick was the other one that I did with, yes, uh, with yes, Brian. Yes. Mm-hmm. They can find me on various episodes of the Jock and Nerd podcast. Uh, we will actually be having one come out in the next few weeks as we record this, where I will be breaking down the horror show of, of uh, Alien 3. Oh, Third time's a charm. <laughs> Beyond that, uh, they could check out the Ginger Geek podcast, which is set to be coming back with all of my quarantine time. Beyond that, uh, I have to finally start actively chasing after Tobin Addington and get on contenders after three years of not doing so. Yes, well, those things all sound good, Matt. So thank you so much for joining us and for, you know, contributing your... I'm glad in the end you you admitted that, like, you didn't hate this movie because, like, for a while you were coming at it, like, not ho- like not unnecessarily hot because, like, it is frustrating, but, like, I'm glad we all sort of wound up in the same spot and had a good conversation about it. So thank you for joining us. 
the uh, the big trouble I tend to have is you know doing the, the the jock and nerd. What we do is we do a series that's called What the Fuck Happened, where we look at like comic book movies and basically usually the bad ones and talk about why did it wind up being so bad. So I usually have to try and get myself out of the mode of ripping a movie apart. So I realized when you were like, well, obviously you didn't like this as much as we did. And my first thought was, actually, I enjoyed it. Oh, I did it again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for all things Cruise Club and Hangs from the Memories, including Matt's episode of Family Ties, and all 70 episodes of the Tom Thumb Club, or whatever, more than 70 now, and all 1,500-something episodes of the Cage Club Podcast Network, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cage club pod on twitter and instagram email us run at cageclub.me. like i said at the top of the show every week now we've got hanks episodes and cruise episodes coming out so now i got to talk about i guess a few things so also today on the hanks the memories feed we've got the lady killers the coen brothers movie and then next week on this fine show mike you and i have edge of tomorrow and we also have over on hanks the memories the terminal so two wildly different movies. oh my goodness what a friday that's gonna be what a friday fridays are for fun but it is crazy that oblivion and edge of tomorrow are back to back but you know that's what happens sometimes cruising in a sci-fi state of mind i'm joey lewandowski and i'm mike manzi and that was matt delhauer we'll see you next time right here on cruise club 